Welcome to the Off-Grid Outpost podcast, where we discuss the journey to real liberty through self-sufficiency, counter-economics, non-aggression, and the agora. The Outpost represents the border between societal norm and the pioneer spirit. Every episode contains practical, philosophical, and technical information you can use to gain the freedom you deserve. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Off-Grid Outpost podcast. This is a bonus episode. So it's just me today, Cyrus, and uh, Regina's not with me. In this episode, I am interviewing Kelly Holholtz. Kelly and I are uh, WeberNet buddies. We're in some groups together on MeWe. And this interview is about trusts. And we talk about the value that they have to the agorist, how they insulate you from the bureaucracy of the state, how they help protect your assets um, from litigation. Kelly talks about the different parts of the trusts and how you can use them, some of the pitfalls, some do's and don'ts. Uh, it's a really great conversation, packed with really good information that you'll find useful especially as an agorist, but even if you're not an agorist, I do want to apologize because the sound quality is not great because it's just Kelly and I having a conversation on the phone, and I just used an app on my phone to record the conversation. So I do apologize for that. Just hang in there. The information is worth it. So without further ado, I will just start playing the interview. So I'm I'm here with Kelly Holholtz, and um, we're going to just kind of have a little discussion about trusts. Kelly and I have uh, kind of gone back and forth on MeWe. We're in a few groups together, and um, well, uh, two groups. I, I don't know how many groups we're in together. Two or three, yeah. Yeah. So the the agorism group and the DIY off grid group. And uh, are you in the moonshine group? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think it is three. Anyway, so we kind of had a brief discussion on there at one point in the agorism group about trusts, and I just thought it would make a a really good discussion for our podcast, and so that's what we're doing today. So, how's your day going? Uh, it's going really, really well. Um, you know, I just can't complain. Cleaned house this morning. All the all the interesting fun stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. The never-ending battles. Oh, uh, yeah, especially if you're a tiny homeowner. Oh, no. Because you can't hide from it. It's not somewhere else in the house where you can ignore it. It's right there. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about that. I I know exactly where you are with that. So, trust, huh? You want to uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about kind of how you got going in trust, where the interest came and why and and all of that? Well, yeah, what originally happened, there was a chiropractor, a doctor I was going to by the name of Jeff Michener, um, and he introduced me to a gentleman, an older guy by the name of Lee Beaker, and Lee was kind of a trust expert. He'd been back in the 80s, you know, the Colorado Posse Comitatus and all these other sort of any, I wouldn't say any government, but constitutionalists and patriot groups. And the IRS had been after him for years and years, and he had uh, 
eventually gone and purchased a, a whole law library from a deceased attorney and had gotten into trust and asset protection really, really well, uh, or really deeply, I should say. And so after I met him, um, I started asking him some questions, and that led to me basically packaging up a blank trust template for other people in Colorado um, to help him sell. And so that's how I initially got into it back in the day. This would have been about 1993 or 94, maybe, mostly in 93. But yeah, um, so almost approaching 25 plus years ago. Wow. Um, and I imagine, you know, trusts are a pretty old kind of instrument. They probably haven't changed much over the years. Um, they go through some legal ramifications, but when you look at it, trusts go back all the way in, in one form or another, all the way, all the way to the Roman Empire. Um, they were the first sort of artificial entity by contract. Um, that you'll find records of that date back literally hundreds, not quite two millennium. We're talking, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, but but we're talking at least fifteen hundred plus years. Yeah. Wow. Long before there were corporations or LLCs or any of that, there were trusts. And so, what's the real purpose of the trust? So the the purpose of the trust is to create an artificial entity that doesn't answer necessarily to the state, unlike corporations or LLCs where the state knows all of the actors in a trust, what we're doing is we're creating a, a doppelganger or a golem to act on our behalf. I, I call it a, a scarecrow in a lot of cases. Basically, it's a way for us to disengage from dealing with the state and allow the trust to do what it needs to do on our behalf. Um, that's the easiest way to define it. And and we'll go into a lot more of the, the benefits and, and how you can use it to, to layer yourself and separate yourself from the state in the long term. Or government entities. I shouldn't just say the state, any government entity. Right. Yeah, well, we on this show, we talk a lot about the state, and that's kind of how we use the term, just as a generic term for a government entity, whether it be, you know, local, state, federal, anything. Right. Yeah. And it, it, the the worst part about governments or this in general is not necessarily, you know, the legislative, executive, judicial, but more often it's an, an excellent tool for defanging and separating yourself from the bureaucracy that's that's what gets most people is just the layers of bureaucracy that you have to deal with, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a way to kind of insulate yourself from that and also a kind of an asset protection. Right. We live in a very litigious society. I mean, people sue people. I mean, the, the most famous story is probably the one everybody's familiar with is the woman who burned herself on the hot coffee for McDonald's. Right. Um, you know, people will sue about uh, over the most trivial and 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 inconsequential issues nowadays. It's just the society that we live in. So if you're not planning, I mean, there's basically been two kinds of people. Or there are two kinds of people. 
the ones that have been sued or the ones that are going to be sued. <laughs> and it's easier to learn. You know, one of the things that I tell my students is, is that a smart man learns from his mistakes. A wise man learns from others, and monkeys learn through repetition. So don't be a monkey. One of the things that I try really hard to impress upon people is, is learn lessons from the people who have fought the hard fights so that when the fight comes to you, you don't have to repeat their mistakes. Um, that's the wisest advice that I could give you regarding this subject. Yeah, that's a, that's the least painful way to learn things. Unfortunately, that's not how I usually learn things, but <laughs> I usually have to do things through pain in some form. <laughs> but I, I had a martial arts teacher that says experience is the best teacher, but it's the most expensive. Right. It, that is very, very true. Yeah. Well, uh, and you were talking about, um, oh, I can't remember the word you used, disentangling yourself from the idea of uh, ownership. So when you... When, right. Huh? Right, correct, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about that, you're speaking from a legal sense, right? Not like from a anarcho-communist kind of position. Um. I would say there's a little bit of philosophy around it, and there's a little bit of legal. So it's kind of a little bit of both. Okay. Um, Buddha famously said, possessions are the dust that cover the mirror of self-reflection. So I'm a big believer not only in minimalist living for myself, but not getting tied up into the things aspect. Our society is full of people who are absolutely consumed with owning things. Um, so that's part of it. The, the other side of it is obviously the legal side where there's asset protection and there's tax avoidance. We don't use the E word. We, we use tax avoidance, not tax evasion. Um, so in those cases, what I'm looking for is the most effective way that, that I can basically disengage from the thought of ownership. It needs to become less important. What I care about is, again, that use, benefit, and control. Who cares if somebody else owns a car so long as you're getting to drive it every day, right? Right. That's that's kind of the mentality you need to adopt and work towards. Right. Yeah, I get that. And, you know, from a agorist perspective, why this was so interesting to me was, you know, there's there are a lot of levels of agorism from the the far side of the spectrum, which is all out. Take Kaczynski, yeah, living in a in a shack in Montana. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's that, and then there's all the way to the other side, the person who is fully engulfed in the system, but they won't get a permit when they have a garage sale. You know, like right. that's, the, mm -hmm. that's the smallest act of agorism, but there's everything. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, agorists um, kind of get there's this there's this purist philosophy, you know, that if you're not full blown agorist, you know, you're just not helping anything. And that's kind you're of not a real you're not a real agorist if you're not living in a shack in Montana, sort of thing. Yeah, there is some of that kind of sentiment out there, but it's getting less and less. Uh, but right. me, you know, my thought is. Everyone who wants to be an agorist, 
they should just do it at their own comfort level because there's there's a level of risk with every agoristic act. You know, not right. not uh, getting the permit for your garage sale. That's pretty low risk. You know, that's not something right. enforced very heavily. Uh, so, and then, you know, someone like me who is somewhere in the middle, probably a little towards the extreme side where I'm not driving with a driver's license and not doing a lot of the things the state says I have to do. And that's where the idea of the trust became interesting to me was, um, you know, how do you, how do you have a vehicle, use a vehicle, not have a driver's license? If you don't have a driver's license, you can't tag it legally. And if, you know, then you, and there's insurance and there's all of these things. And mm -hmm. the trust right. kind of solved all those problems. Right. That was really interesting to me because now, now I can have a legal tag on my vehicle even though I don't have a driver's license. Correct. So where I, and so here's here's what I would say. In response, because you're giving me a lot to unpack in this yeah. segment, um, it, everything is a trade-off. How much time do you want to expend fighting the government versus I got to I got to get things done? I, I, I almost said something that uh, I don't want to use profane language. For me, the the amount of time it takes to create a trust is minutes, literally. It takes longer for my, it probably takes longer for my printer to warm up than it does for me to create the trust. Mm -hmm. it takes minutes, but if I can put plates on that car and I'm not getting pulled over constantly for expired plates, right. and that's saving me time because the only true possession, Bruce Lee said, the only true possession that you own are the moments of your life. Where do you spend them at? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to spend them sitting on the side of the road while some cop goes, you know, why do you have these paper tags on your car? Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. I got things to do. And so there, everything is a trade-off of convenience versus the acts of agorism, civil disobedience, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. I, I congratulate even the smallest act, be it the garage sale permit, you know, Heinlein said, uh, I remember the first time that my government collected a trillion dollars in taxes, and thank God most of it was wasted. Um, <laughs> anything that I can take out of their pockets, I'm all for. Right. <laughs> you know, if there was an Academy Award for, I'd like to thank everybody for my for, for all the support and my continuing efforts to screw the system, I want to be a guy that's nominated for that Academy Award. Right on. So, yeah, and then, you know, and in my position, the the time factor is quite a bit because I've got to the point where you know, they pull me over, and they can write me for four different tickets, plus I won't pay their fines, and so then they get to put me in jail for failure to pay, and then I get to spend eight to twelve hours sitting in a holding tank waiting for them to let me out, and you know that's it's getting really old. Mm -hmm. and, and, and having the, the return on the return on investment for the act of civil disobedience has to be worth it. Mm -hmm. And there's a point again, that point of diminishing return where I have to go, my time is worth more than than my I don't want to say my beliefs, but my time is worth more than the hassle. 
more than anything else. Well, I mean, that's a that's a set of scales that you're talking about. On one hand, you're weighing one exactly. thing. On the other hand, you're weighing another thing, and that's going to be different for everyone. But it's just a, um, you know, like you said, it's a compromise. Where, where are you going to fall in that position? But when we were in the chat and you were talking about the trust, I just thought, man, that's something that can be really useful to a lot of people because, number mm-hmm. one, legal. It's not illegal to use them. Now, maybe in the ways that I plan on using them, it might not be what they were intended for, but it doesn't mean they're illegal. And so it's something that a lot of people could feel comfortable using. Right, because what you're doing, okay, let's let's kind of touch base on what a trust is real quick. Yeah, let's do it. A trust, a trust is a contractual artificial entity, just like a corporation or an LLC is an artificial entity that is created by the state. The trust is basically the original version of an LLC or corporation, but done by contract rather than by government permission. So from a legal standpoint, what we're looking at is we're we're using a contract between a couple of people to create this scarecrow person that can act in behalf of us ourselves. So while we can still maintain our belief system, the trust, on the other hand, as, as our scarecrow, can can engage with and deal with a lot of the crap that we as people don't want to necessarily have to put our name on. Mm-hmm. So the the most important thing is is that because it's the oldest version of an artificial entity or one of the oldest versions of an artificial entity, um, it's something that's well-known and well-regarded in legal circles and has been for a very, very long time. Um, you look at all of the truly rich, famous, powerful, and I just sent you a link, actually, on MeWe about the billionaire divorce up in South Dakota where the wife got the wife filed divorce and the husband had been putting everything in trust for years, and she got nothing or very, very little. So there are a lot of intangible benefits to having this artificial entity, this this scarecrow, doing things on your behalf. For lack of a better term, you can call it a doppelganger or a golem that follows your commands. Okay. And when we're talking about this kind of trust that you – this particular trust, are we talking about a revocable, an irrevocable – what kind of trust are you specifically talking about? I'm specifically talking about irrevocable trusts um, from both a legal and an asset protection standpoint. Uh, it's my belief that revocable or quote-unquote living trusts aren't worth the paper they're printed on. They are, they're very easily pierced um, from a legal standpoint. What I mean by pierced is that someone can say, well, this is just a living trust uh, because you are – both grantor and trustee, and we'll get into that in a second, um, of the trust, it's very easy to say that it's just this person, you as a person doing business as this trust, and then they just waltz straight through it and into your assets and, and everything else. So I am not, I've never written a revocable trust in my life, and I never will. Um, but it's not hard to do it properly. 
Okay, so you just kind of started touching on the different parts of a trust uh, people involved. Why don't we go over those right here? Who all is involved okay. in trust? So you basically need two parties at the very minimum. Three is optimal. The first party is the grantor. This is the person that creates a trust and says, I want to create a trust called XYZ Trust. The second person is the trustee. Now, understand that we're, we're talking about three people being involved. No person in a revoke in an irrevocable trust may occupy more than one position. So, a grantor who creates the trust and names a trustee to operate one and do all the business that trust needs to be done. And then there's a third person called a beneficiary. So the the beneficiary isn't absolutely necessary at the creation of the trust. They can be designated. You can actually put in a line that says the trustee will designate the beneficiaries at a later date, blah, 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 blah. But it's better uh, if you're looking at assets that, say, you want to pass on to your kids and avoid estate taxes, it's better if they are named as beneficiary in the trust when the trust is created. So the process in most cases is that, and the beneficiaries are only named in the trust. They don't actually have to be involved with the creation of it. The only two people that have to be hands-on, available, and together are the grantor and then the trustee because they need to sign the document at the same time, either in front of witnesses or in front of a notary. I like notaries better simply because it makes it a lot more ironclad. Um, if you ever do have to defend the trust legally, it's a lot easier to do with a notarized trust than three witnesses who, who knows what, I mean, I've got trusts that are 30 years old. I couldn't tell you where my witnesses were that saw a sign it. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm a big believer if you write a trust that you should have it notarized. Okay. Uh, well, let me, here's another question. Sure. So we have ABC Trust. Mm-hmm. I'm a grantor, and another person is a trustee. And right. I'm going to put my vehicle in this trust, ABC Trust. Okay. How does the does the trust itself own the vehicle, or is ownership actually in the trustees? Okay, so you're kind of backwards on that, but I'll spell it out for you. Let me answer your question first. The trust is the actual owner of the property. doesn't matter what it is, car, motorcycle, boat, house, whatever. Um, So, for instance, if I need a trust for something and I want to be the trustee because the trustee is the one who can actually sign off and do business and everything else, I go to a buddy and say, hey, will you grant your trust? Sure, whatever. And then he grants a trust with naming me as trustee and then gives me the power to designate beneficiaries at a later date. So once a trust is created, the trust has durable provisions to do business for the trustee to do business in the name of the trust itself. So if I had a car that I wanted to put in trust. Here's how I would do it. And what we want to do is 
we don't want to, whenever possible, we want to not allow the grantor any. I mean, friends are friends, family is family, business is business. So, and what I mean by that is that whenever possible, I don't want the grantor to have any say over what happens with the trust. So there's a couple of ways that I could do that. Um, I could, let's take this vehicle in question, take the title, sign the title over him, have him get the title in his name, and then he grants us a trust with the car in it. Okay, now I'm trustee, and I, I have a trust, and there's, there's a car in this trust. Here's the problem. While he's got your title in hand, what's to stop him from going and getting one of these title loans on your car um, and, or selling your car, et cetera, et cetera? So I don't like situations like that. Right. Here's a better example. You have a car that you want to put in trust. You go to your buddy. Hey, Joe, I need a, I need a trust. Sure. He creates a trust, and he puts $10 in it. Okay, cool. Now you're trustee of a trust that owns $10. And you think, you know, as the discretionary, uh, basically, manager, trustee of this trust, I think it'd be a really awesome thing if this trust bought my car for $10. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And then you have your title, which has never left your hand, and you have sold the car from yourself to the trust for the princely sum of $10. Now the car is in the trust. It's all legal transaction and nobody else. And once the trust is granted, the, the, the grantor has, or once the trust is granted, the grantor has no authority over it. He can't say anything about it once it's created. That's the irrevocable part. That's the irrevocable part. Correct. Okay. Um, and everything is on the up and up and legit. Nobody can say, you know, and, and if anybody were to say, hey, you know, how did this car end up in this trust? Oh, well, you, you could show them the trust document that says, I have the absolute authority to conduct business on behalf of this trust. And the way that I write my trust is that at the end of the trust, they're given a life expectancy. Although the trustee and the beneficiaries can change this life expectancy. I usually plan them out 35 to 50 years. They'll be they'll, this trust will be around long after I'm gone. But the only thing that is obligated to happen at the end of the trust is that whatever was originally put into the trust is passed on to the beneficiaries. So, in our example a minute ago, our trust was granted with $10. At the end of the expiration, the beneficiaries only have an expectation to receive the $10 and nothing more. Okay. So anything that the trust possesses, buys, sells, trades, hires, fires, in between point A and point B, the grantoring of the trust and the end of the duration of the trust, that's for the trustee to decide. All he's got an obligation to do is to pass on that original $10 to the beneficiaries at the end of the life expectancy or the life de- uh, uh, determination of the trust. Okay. So, uh, in our example, the the vehicle, mm-hmm. yeah. 
put into trust, ABC trust. Right. The the state requires, you know, there to be someone that goes to the tag office and a place to mail things. So that's where the trustee comes in, right? The trustee does well, trust- he can do all that. Right. He he can do all of the business business on behalf of the trust. Now, as an agorist, let's say you don't have a driver's license, and your state requires that you provide a driver's license and proof of insurance when you go register the vehicle. One of the aspects of a trust is a trust has the right to to designate or to hire employees. It can hire managers, helpers, contract laborers, and everything else. And you could even write up a little form saying, I, Joe Blow, as trustee, do hire for the next 24 hours. Mike knows it all, you know, or whatever his name is, to be a manager in order to conduct business on behalf of XYZ, ABC Trust, whatever. Okay. So when your buddy's got a driver's license, he's got authority in hand to do business on behalf of the trust signed by the trustee. He trots his little happy butt over to DMV, registers your car for you, comes back, hands you your plates, hands you your registration, and when the 24-hour period elapses, he's automatically dismissed. See, there's a lot of different ways to game the system without necessarily putting yourself at risk. Because then if somebody comes back and goes, well, you know, Mike knows it all, came and registered this car, you can say, oh, well, here was his 24-hour contract employment. He went and did business on behalf of the trust and then was automatically dismissed at the end. What are they going to say? <laughs> I mean, literally, they got nothing they could say about that because he did a legal act on behalf of the trust via the trustee, and there's documented proof of it. Yeah, excellent. And, you know, that's that's what agorism is all about. That's the counter-economy right there in action. Right. That's the kind of thing I'm exactly. all about. And, you know, trying to... Uh, just help fi- help people find ways to navigate that kind of philosophy. So absolutely, absolutely, I, yeah. I think this is ve- going to be very helpful to a lot of people. And then the the title then is it mm-hmm. in the, is it in the name of the trust when you get the title? Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's not even a person on the title. Nope. Now, in my state, Colorado, they require the right to make a copy of the trust. Um, or they require a copy of the trust when uh, you go down to register a vehicle. And I don't care about that. <laughs> Have fun. Go ahead. Whatever. Because all it's got on is a mailing address. And for me, the mailing address is usually like a UPS store Dropbox or something like that. So, you know, good luck with that, guys. Let me know how that turns out. And that's the other nice thing about it is because it's a business, a lot of states require for individuals that the registration be at the address of the owner. Well, because the owner is an artificial entity, our scarecrow, he can use a P.O. box. He can, well, not a P.O. box, but like a UPS box mm-hmm. or mailboxes, et cetera, something like that. And now we've got registration and tags that lead back to a UPS store. <laughs> Good right. luck figuring this one out. Yeah. You know. 
you know what we're what we're talking about too is just layers to make things more difficult. You know, we've talked before about how agorism is a game of cat and mouse. And so right. you're just trying to make it hard for the cat. So, right. um, and a lot of people, I think a lot of people approach this kind of activity from the standpoint that the state wants to catch everybody that's doing anything that is wrong. And I don't think that's accurate. I think the resources that they have available to them to spend man hours hunting down bad guys, I think that stuff is all reserved for high-level criminals. I don't think they have right. time to really give that much of a shit about me. You know? Correct. So if I can just make it a little bit more difficult for them, they're not, you know, that's just a path they may choose not to go down. Once it, once they hit a couple of speed bumps, they might start thinking, geez, why are we spending all these man hours on this guy who he's just tried to figure out a way to tag his vehicle, you know, or whatever it is, unless I'm just, unless I'm running pounds of cocaine, I don't think they really care that much. Exactly. I'll give you two things to unpack from what you just said to me. Number one, one of my Delta Force mentors, a gentleman by the name of Paul Howell, if you're familiar with Black Hawk Down, um, one of the Delta operators that was represented in the movie was is Paul Howell in real life. And he talks about a multiple layer of defense. You know, his first layer of defense is his rifle. His second layer of defense is his breaching shotgun. His third layer of defense is his sidearm, his pistol. And then his fourth and final level of layer of defense is his, you know, combat knife. He says, if I've got to be using my combat knife, I have done everything wrong since I got out of bed that morning. Yeah. So... By using these layers, we are creating multiple layers of defense. And so we make it so, I, I mean, a lot of, a lot of crimes and, and things that, that they pass, you know, like Colorado's magazine ban. Nobody's ever gotten arrested on just Colorado's high-capacity magazine ban. What they'll do is they'll catch you doing something else, you know, running the, the the trunk full of cocaine or something else, they'll hit you on that, and then they'll tack on 18 charges of high-capacity magazine possession or something like that. Uh, they're basically trying to force your hand to plead. So in most cases, they're not after you. They really don't have the manpower and resources to track down every guy that's gaming the system a little bit. It's simply it's a labor synthesis and that syphilis, it's a labor synthesis, and that there's just not enough manpower to go around unless you're doing something really, really bad to begin with. Yeah. Uh, oh, the second, the second thing, um, when you when you talk about what what was the first thing? The first thing was multiple layers of defense, and then the second thing was now I don't remember. So we'll we'll it'll come back to me in a second, but we'll touch on it then. Yeah, so, you know, it's just a matter of resources, you know, mm-hmm. matter of, I, people are, you know, when, I, and I don't know how accurate this is, I don't know anything about how the government operates as far as how they catch bad guys and all the CSI stuff that you see on TV, 
my guess is right. that doesn't exist. Most of that is just like good TV, you know, where they uh, they track you down through this and through that, and then they saw you on this traffic camera over here, and then they, you know, all the things that you see on TV. That stuff is reserved for. Well, that stuff is not for catching the guy that just sold a pint jar of moonshine. Correct. I mean, they're not looking for Bin Laden. Um, What I would say is those sorts of technologies at that level kind of exist, and I can't really talk about that because they're things that I know that are not for public consumption. Well, that's fine. There are some things that that do exist for high-level, high-value targets. Um, But unless you're doing something seriously, seriously wrong, you know, it's a matter of possible versus probable. Is it possible to catch the guy selling the court jar of moonshine? Absolutely. Is it probable that they're going to expend those sorts of resources to catch the guy with the court jar of moonshine? Nah, probably not. Yeah. That, um, that, so yeah. an agorist has to measure everything going back to that balancing of the scales of possible versus probable and how much risk he's willing to take on that. Right. Yeah, and, you know, we've already proven that if enough people just disobey certain rules, they change the rules to accommodate you. Absolutely. I mean, marijuana, is for one. You know, that the states finally had to just co-opt that and, and make it legal. I mean, before long, every state it'll be legal, and before long it won't be illegally federally because they don't have a choice. I mean, right. they don't have enough room to lock everybody up that's breaking that law. They've been trying right. for decades, and they've, you know, they've figured out they can't do it. Right. I, I will give to you a very wise piece of advice that a, a very good friend of mine, David, everybody calls him Donut, um, gave me. Everything political is a matter of policy, uh, profit, um and there were two others. Uh, anyway, and, and a lot of things, and power, I'm sorry, uh, and power was the last one. And every law that gets passed, you know, does it give them more power? Is it profitable for them to run? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and are there politics involved? So when you look at it from a lens of those three, um, the legalization of marijuana, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because we're talking about trust. But the legalization of marijuana in this case is that there was a lot of profit in it. The states are making an absolute boatload of money off the taxes on it. Um, there's power in it because now they can control it, whereas before, you know, they, they couldn't control the issue. It was It was becoming a sinkhole you know, the war on drugs, et cetera, was becoming a sinkhole for money, which was killing profitability. And obviously they they want to pander to the base that believe in marijuana as a right in this sense. So there's good politics in it. So that, that was kind of why the whole marijuana thing. So whenever you hold up any actions the government's taking, look at it from the position of politics, power, and profit. And if you do, you'll figure out, really easily who's benefiting off of it. Yeah. Anyway, back to trust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got I get sidetracked really easy, so you know. Ooh, squirrel. <laughs> yeah. Sparkles. 
sparkles. Yay. Yeah, so at, since we've talked about the trust, I mean, this has been, I don't know, a week or so. I don't remember when we had that conversation mm-hmm. online, but I've just right. been thinking about it all nonstop and just have come up with all kinds of different ways that I could use that. And it, oh, absolutely! And they're so easy to write. You could wallpaper your house with them. I mean, literally at any given time, I've probably got fifteen or twenty trusts active. Um, and that doesn't include some of the ones that are inactive or sitting in a drawer I don't use for anything or didn't. I wanted to do something slightly different or an address change, something like that. But, yeah, they're, it, it literally costs you nothing. You could have a guy grant or one with a dollar in it and, you know, or 50 cents technically. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you've got it, the possibilities are endless. I, I mean, everything that you own can be in, like, for me, I don't want to go too far into this, but some of my possessions are in one specific trust. You know, my vehicle is in a different trust. You know, my home is in a different trust. Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So that in the event one trust did get breached or pierced, they can't get to all the other things that, that the other trusts own. They would have to go through this process each and every time going back to that multiple layer defense theory. Mm hmm. What about the idea that you, you were talking about how you have a buddy or somebody be the grantor and then uh, mm-hmm. the the trust makes you the trustee? Mm-hmm. What about in the case of a marriage, can can one spouse be the grantor and the other spouse be the trustee? Is that safe? I would say it was questionable. Is it doable? Absolutely. Um is it one of those things because of various states' community property laws? Um, it's something that I personally have always avoided. Even Lee, my original mentor in this, um, if his wife wanted a trust, cool. It was usually over stuff that he had no interest or control over or wanted anything to do with. I, I generally tell people, just go to a buddy, a neutral third-party buddy, and have them do it. It's just smarter money that way, to be honest with you. Okay. And, you know, like you said other earlier, neither one of us are attorneys. So for the listeners, you've got to do your own due diligence. Every state's going to be different. There's different kinds of trust. You've just got to do your own due diligence. But it's something for sure that uh, I, I think it would be advantageous to look into at the very least. I mean, I got online and there's just, I, I typed in my state and irrevocable trust and there it was just blank templates online that you can do but i mean they're pretty from what i can understand and just the basic research i've done they're like super basic and maybe don't touch all the bases that you might need but right i I would be very very cautious um about using blank templates um you really have to go through the template with a fine-tooth comb um you know, to make sure that the trustee has all the authority that you need, that everything is labeled and named correctly and, dur- you know, durability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But these are all, you know, like anything else, you got to dot all the I's and cross all the T's because if you miss one, uh, <laughs> that's going to be your ass hanging out in the wind. And, you know, that would be the smart thing to not get involved in, you know, 
the smarter thing is, you know, to, to be very prepared. Um, and the more research you do, the easier it is. And once you've done your initial one or two, after that, it becomes very, very, very easy. It's simply a matter, in most cases, of creating that first one. Uh, I think that it's smart in your state. I had a very interesting conversation with a real estate attorney three days ago talking about this very subject, and he brought up two points that are germane only to my state, but I went, oh, okay, and he said, here's the name of a trust attorney. I would talk to him first, and I went, excellent work, cool, I'll do that. And for me to protect a $20,000 car, a a $100,000-plus home or whatever your home costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is it worth spending you know, an hour or two with an attorney? And once you've done your research and you have your document compiled, have it looking right, take it to an attorney in your state and say, hey, fact check this. Does it pass the sniff test? And if he signs off on it, that's money well spent. Right. You know, too many people are penny wise and pound foolish and think, man, I can I can I can print this free template I off off the internet, I can start writing trust and I'll be in business. And then, you know, they back out of the driveway and run over the neighbor's kid and find out that trust template that they downloaded off the internet isn't as good as they thought it was. And do you think the guy who published that template on the internet is in any way responsible for you screwing up that trust? Not even a little bit. Right. He, he, he. So again, it's that learn from the mistakes of other wisdom, and if nothing else, at least be smart. You know, before you go out and start papering your house with these things. Yeah. Another interesting thing I ran into was a lot of states they don't even require any kind of recording with the state itself. Which I thought was really interesting. Like it's just it's completely and totally private. Right. I mean, if if you go down and write a contract with your neighbor to say I'll mow your lawn once a week for ten dollars, there's no requirement to follow that contract with the state, is there? Right. So again, trusts are merely artificial entities created by contract. Some states, Alabama's one, because that's where my mom is at when I did hers. Some states required they be filed. Certain types of business trusts for Ohio, we were, I, when I researched that for that guy last week. Private trusts, cool, no, no requirement to file. Business trusts that are going to be conducting business have to be filed. So every state's going to be a little bit different. But my state has no requirement for filing. You know, there there are certain instances where they'll want a copy of it, like registering a car in Colorado. But by and large, the the reality is is that it's just a contract. It's nobody's business. And so that's the, the agoristic viewpoint that we need to take when we're creating trust is it's in my contract, my business, tough shit, too bad, so sad. And it's not, you know, you don't need to know what's going on here. Right. And I think the privacy act, the, the privacy aspect, you know, we talked about asset protection and, and the agoristic, but I think the privacy is a huge, huge part of this that really, really, you know, because when you file, depending on your state, um, trusts trust have a huge advantage over corporations and LLCs in a couple of areas. Number one, 
There's no searchable database at the Secretary of State's office for a lot of these states that they can look up who the officers and owners and profitability, blah, 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 blah. Number two, they're very private. You know, uh, I'm sorry, uh, privacy is the first one. So you get privacy, which is part of your layers of defense. The second thing is no yearly filing fees like there is for an LLC and a trust. You know, I do have LLCs, and I use them for very specific purposes. But every year, i got to go in and file a statement of standing and have the officers change, blah, 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 blah. And i got to pay them $10 a year for that stupid right. Yeah. And so and corporations are the same way. Uh, any new corporate officers, any changes, et cetera, et cetera. So it's less engagement with the state to use a trust. Um, and then third, obviously, is the asset protection asset of it, which we discussed. So uh, this is why I'm such a big proponent and a huge believer of trust is that in the big scheme of things, if if you know if you're thinking about being agorist or following an agoristic lifestyle, at the very minimum, even if it's just the guy doing the garage sale without a permit, are you thinking about privacy first? You know. Are you keeping your name out of the headlines, so to speak? That's where you got to start at. When you start thinking in terms of privacy and disassociation from ownership, you know, there's where the journey truly starts to being your own man or woman. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Well, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it here. We're probably over an hour. Uh, okay. So, this has been a real good interview, and I'm sure we'll be we'll be talking later about different topics. Uh, for the listeners, if you want to find us and chat with us in the chat room, you can find us on MeWe, and the group is Applied Agorism. And I'll I'll leave some links in the show notes where you can find me, or you can find Kelly, or you can find the group. And I don't know about Kelly, but you won't find me on Facebook. Uh, but there's... I've got an account. It's usually banned for <laughs> saying unpopular things. At no time is a, is a man more persecuted than should he speak the truth. I, I usually can't respo- respond to people or posts on Facebook because I'm banned for some reason or another. So, yeah, MeWe is definitely the better place to find me at. Well, I had set up an account. I just don't ever go to it anymore. It's uh, yeah. There's a hilarious video that I saw on YouTube today from uh, are you familiar with Awaken with JP he's a comedian a little bit I've seen a couple little snippets of his but I don't know his material very well he's hilarious but he put out a he put out a video uh, called an apology to Facebook or my apology to Facebook and it is so funny I may I'm, I'm probably going to drop it in the group anyway so um Man, I appreciate you taking this time with me. And My pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Great cool. conversation. And, you know, let's let's visit and dig into it a little more at some point in the future and start filling people in on how the actual mechanics of it work and how to do it. Yeah, man, that sounds real good. And you got some other stuff coming up in the future that I'm going to want to talk to you about, too, and we'll touch base on that later. So. Yeah, I appreciate Always it. glad to talk to you, Cyrus, and, and if you need anything, just let me know, bud. All right, thanks.